slight deviation from what we were planning to do. We have been, of course, working through the fruit of the Spirit, and uh, today was going to be the fruit of gentleness. Uh, but when I saw the forecast, I knew that uh, we would be missing quite a few people today, uh, some that just uh, cannot and should not get out uh, in weather like this, uh, some that are stranded in Florida of all places. That's where the, the rest of the Chambers crew is. Uh, sadly, they're stuck there for another day or so. But uh, I'm sure Shelby probably prayed fervently for that, like maybe some sort of permanent residency down there. Uh, and so I, I want as many of us as possible to hear uh, the sermon on the fruit of gentleness because it is so very important uh, for us as Christians to understand what it means to be gentle, particularly in our present cultural climate. And so we're forgoing that today. And uh, one of the things that is, has bounced around in my brain is talking about humility uh, in conjunction with the fruit of the Spirit because uh, humility is really this, this thing that undergirds all of it. We cannot love, we cannot have joy and peace and patience in any of the fruit if we are not humble people. And so it begins with humility, and the opposite of humility is pride. And so what pride does is pride stands in the way of us being humble. Pride stands in the way of love. Pride says, um, I don't want to do this. Pride will look at the fruit of love and say, I don't want to love you. I want to love me. Pride will say, I don't want to be patient with you. I want you to do what I want you to do right now. That's what pride communicates. But it also communicates a couple of other things as well. Even if you're uh, potentially eager to do the fruit of the Spirit, pride will convince you that you don't need that fruit. Pride will say, you love enough. Pride will say, you're patient, and it will create blind spots in our lives so that we don't see that we are being harsh with others, that we are being short-tempered with others. Pride conceals and pride covers those things up. Pride also does this. It will convince us, even if we want to grow in love and joy and peace and patience, it will convince us that we can do it in our own power. You can grow in patience by yourself. You don't need the Spirit. And that looks like this, which often manifests itself in my life, a lack of prayer. A lack of prayer is a communication that says, God, I can grow in patience myself. I can be the best husband. I can be the best pastor. I can be, I don't need your help in this particular endeavor. Pride has taken over there. And so I hope you see just as we kind of get going here, we're going to cover some stuff. Some of you have probably worked through some of this material with me before. I just kind of pulled this together. Um, but I hope you see that, that pride is the enemy of the fruit of the Spirit. Pride is the enemy of humility. And so today we're going to look at how we can kill pride and how we can cultivate humility, therefore cultivating uh, love and joy and peace and patience and all the remainder of the fruit of the Spirit. If you would turn with me, we're going to get started in Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, we're going to look at just a couple of verses here as this chapter opens. 
And if I freeze up up here, somebody just come kind of whack me in the head because my notes are a disastrous mess this morning. And so I may just get stuck like this. And so I may need some assistance. Or you can just throw something at me. That would work too. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. These verses are beautiful. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. We just sang about that, right? He is seated in the heavens. The earth, my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. Let's just let's, let's stop there for just a moment. Let's consider the truths that have been spoken already. His throne is heaven. Earth is his footstool. That puts us in a very subservient position to this God. We are the footstool. And then he says, what, what house are you going to build for me? And he's speaking primarily here of the temple. And they, they built this structure. And Solomon, even in his dedic dedicated prayer for the temple, he said, we're foolish if we think that this house can contain our God. It cannot, and he repeats really what Solomon has said, that we can't, we can't put God in a, in a physical manifested place. He's bigger than that. He's created all of these things. But notice what he says in the last part of verse 2, and here's where our focus will be as we kick off today. But, so he's just declared his grandeur, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and of a contrite and in contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. I'll look to that one. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we pray your blessing on the word. Use it in our lives. Spirit, do your work of killing pride and cultivating humility. We pray for that right now, in Jesus' name, amen. We have to stay conscious of the horrible consequences of pride in our lives. We have to stay conscious of the horrible consequences of pride. It's serious. We know from the opening chapters in the Bible how serious pride is. Pride is what Satan sold to Adam and Eve when they said, hey, you can be like the gods if you will only eat of this. And they were deceived. And they decided they wanted something more than God was offering them. They usurped the authority of God and they ate of the fruit of the tree. And it spun everything that we know into chaos and curse. Pride has extreme consequences. Proverbs 6 which we read last week when we were speaking of a lying tongue, says this, there are six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. You know what the header of this list is? A proud look. Somebody who's filled with pride. I love this quote by Charles Bridges. I think you may have it in your bulletin. I cannot remember if I stuck it in there, but here's what it says. Pride lifts up the heart against God. And it contends for supremacy with him. And I love this. He says, how unseemly moreover is this sin. A creature so utterly dependent and so fearfully guilty 
yet so proud in heart. Pride lifts us up to contend with God himself. It's as if we're saying, you don't know what you're doing. You're making a mistake. Pride lifts us up. James 4, 6 quotes something that's mentioned multiple times throughout the pages of Scripture. It's this particular principle that I want you to get today. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's really the antithesis of this Isaiah passage. This Isaiah passage says, the one that I will look upon, the one that the, the Almighty who, who is seated in the heavens, who has created all things, the one thing that gets his attention, the one thing that draws his gaze is somebody who is humble. And God says, I will give grace to that particular person. Pride destroys us. So we need to stay conscious of the danger of pride. Second thing we need to do is get excited about the promise of humility. What a promise in Isaiah 66 verse 2. I will look to the one who is humble in heart. I will turn my attention to the one who is humble in heart. Nothing escapes God's notice. Not one thing ever escapes God's notice, but one thing does capture his attention, according to Isaiah. He is aware of all things. He is omniscient, and yet he reveals here in this passage one thing that he's searching for, the humble, the one who is contrite in heart. What is the posture of humility? I'm going to open this one up. What, what, is, what does it mean when we say a person is humble? What are some other synonyms that we could throw in there that would help us to understand humility? What are we talking about? If I'm going to be humble before God, somebody throw out some suggestions. Selfless. Selfless, good. Yeah, not self-focused, focused on other things. Good, what else? What's that? Lowly, yes, finding our position. We're not up here, we're down here. Good. What else? Servant. Servant, very good. Servant-oriented. Surrender. Trusting. Pliable. There's all sorts of words that we could use to describe what humility is. We need to get excited about the promise that God makes that he says, I will look to the ones who are humble. I will look to the ones who are contrite in spirit. And in order to grow in these areas, in order to recognize the danger of pride and put it to death and cultivate uh, this, this fruit of humility in our lives, there's certain things that we have to do. There's certain things that we must accomplish. Just as we covered every other fruit of the Spirit, there's certain things that have to be put off, and there's certain things that have to be put on. John Stott writes this. He says, at every stage of our Christian development, pride is our greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. Think of that. Pride is our greatest enemy, humility our greatest friend. And so, in the time that we have together, I want to give you some practical things. And again, these are things that I have shared before, so some of you may find these familiar. Uh, these are taken from C.J. Mahaney's book, uh, Humility. Uh, True Greatness is the full title of that particular book. But how can we grow in these particular areas? How can I put off pride and put on humility? Number one, 
Study the attributes of God. Consider what Isaiah 66 opens with. What's he describing? The character of God. And it's humbling when we realize he's seated in heaven. He's created everything. Nothing I can build or make can contain him. He's bigger than all of it. We're reminded as we consider those attributes of how incredible he is. That's why nearly every week as we've covered the fruit of the Spirit, what have we done? We've described the goodness of God from the Scriptures because we see the picture of what we're called to be. We've looked at the patience of God from Scripture. We've looked at the love of God from Scripture because we're being reminded of who he is. I want you to turn with me one text here, Isaiah 40. We're in 66, so just go back a little bit. I have some other passages there for you that you can look at and consider, but uh, this is one that is my favorite when it comes to the character, the greatness of God. There are many attributes of God we could talk about. This one primarily focuses on His omnipotence, that He is all-powerful, but we could talk about His love, His holiness, His goodness, kindness, His patience. But let's, let's begin Isaiah chapter 40, and... Uh, I tell you what, let's just start in verse 12. This should sound a little bit familiar because we just sang these words. Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure? Who can weigh the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who's measured the spirit of the Lord and and what man shows him his counsel? Who did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. And Lebanon would not suffice for fuel to burn, for burnt offerings, nor is beast enough for burnt offering. All the nations are like nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. So to whom then would you liken God? Or what likeness would you compare him with, an idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold. And he casts for its silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that would not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that it is he who sits upon the circle of the earth? And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted and scarcely sown. Scarcely are the stems taking root in the earth and he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. So to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. He who brings out their host, the stars by number, and calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. 
Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right hand is disregarded by my God. Have you not known and have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he does not faint or grow weary? His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint and to those who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths will faint and be weary, and young men will fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength and mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Isaiah 40 puts us in our place every time. Isaiah 40 reminds us we're like grasshoppers. Who are we to question God? The attributes of God in passages like Isaiah 40 Help us to grow in humility. I mean, it stabs the pride right out of us as we consider His greatness, His power, and our weakness, our limited knowledge, our lack of wisdom. The grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this, writes R.C. Sproul. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God does exist. God does not need me in order for him to be. I do need God in order for me to be. We're dependent. We're fragile. No human being has the power of being within himself. Life is lived between two hospitals. We need support system from birth to death in order to sustain life. We're like flowers that bloom and then wither and fade. And this is how we differ from God. God does not wither. God does not fade. God is not fragile. He is great. First thing we need to do if we're going to kill pride and cultivate humility so that we can grow the fruit of the Spirit is we have to consider the attributes of God. Second thing, every day go to the cross. Every day consider what Christ has done for you. When we truly go to the cross, it is impossible to be prideful there, isn't it? As you consider him taking your place, your sin, giving you his righteousness. What is there to boast in? That's what Paul argues in Romans 3. Why are you going to boast in your works? Your works nailed him to the cross. It's his work that offers you life now. We have to go to the cross and consider what he has done. I tell you, you can sing some incredible songs there. When I survey the wondrous cross, at the cross, there's some incredible things that we can do just in our day-to-day -day life that take us there, that help us to be re reminded of what Christ has done for us. Look with me at, at one passage for this point, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. We're going to be very topical today as we bounce around, but Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 is where we'll start.
mention that there's, there's one other place that you can go. Well, there's multiple places you can go, but one other suggested place would be Isaiah 53. As you just encounter there what Christ is suffering, it's a great reminder. It's a humbling chapter to read. But Philippians 2 sets this up so well and says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, Paul says, then complete my joy. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Have unity, he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know this passage because we probably come here once a month or at least quote it once a month. Because the principles here are foundational for unity in a church. They're foundational for unity in a home. They're foundation for, for what we're to be in Christ. We're to prefer the interest of others over our own. Love looks like you coming before me. And that's all built upon what? Having a humility in mind. Being humble. Being the lowly person. Being the servant. Being the one who's selfless. All the words that were used to describe. That's what puts us in this particular position. But what I want you to see here is what he does in verse 5. He says, have this mind, this mind of humility amongst yourself that is also, and let me pick up where I'm at here, have the mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And notice how he goes on to describe who, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was willing to let go of that, but he emptied himself and he took upon him the form of a servant. And he was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. I love what Paul does here. He says you should be humble. You should prefer the interest of others because that's the mind, that's the heart, that's the fruit of Christ. That's what he did there was no room for pride in him. He laid everything aside. He didn't account his glory in heaven something to cling to, but he was willing to take on, consider the humility of the creator becoming part of creation. Consider the humility of Jesus' life. Remember the guy who said, Jesus, I want to follow you, and he turned around and he said, I don't have anywhere to lay my head. He had no claim to a home. He had no claim to a location. He lived a life of humility. He was despised and rejected to pull from Isaiah 53. And then he died the most humiliating death that one could die. Hanging naked on a cross. Even his father turning his back because of our sin. Jesus exemplifies humility. When we go to the cross, that's what we see there. When we consider the life of Jesus, that's what we see there. Born in humility, lived the life of a servant, was constantly bombarded by people. If he wanted to pray and when he needed to pray, he had to do it in the middle of the night when everybody else was asleep. 
He lived that life of humility. We see it there. Three, a third thing we need to do if we will kill pride and cultivate humility. We need to study, we need to consider the doctrine of sin. And, and what I mean by that is we need to understand our own sinfulness. We need to understand our own propensity to choose wrong over right. Our own depravity that causes us to, to be blind to certain areas of our life where we think, I'm a very loving person, and other people, huh? <laughs> I, I'm patient. No. You've got a different definition of patient than most people. We, we are easily blinded because of sin, and there's great resources that we could consider here. But let me read this particular quote by Mike Renhan. He says, we do not like to admit our faults nor confess we're sinners. I'm guilty on both accounts, but the sooner we admit and confess, the quicker we can deal with our pride. The taxonomy of the problem looks like this. Premise, all men are sinners. And upon further examination, we find that sinners fall into two distinct classes. Those who admit their sin and those who don't. Those who confess and those who don't. So those who admit themselves to be sinners, they fall into two more classes. Those who do something about it and those who do not. It's only those who deal with their soul's true dire need before God who make progress out of their sin. The truth is it sounds very simple, doesn't it? But the greater truth is it's pretty complicated for us. Because confession doesn't come easy for a lot of us. It's hard for us to admit to God we've failed. It's hard for us to admit to others and seek forgiveness from them for our failures. We struggle in that area. We may admit we sin. We may be that humble, but we're not humble enough until we confess our sin. We turn from our sin. We repent of our sin. General belief in the doctrine of sin is not enough. Any and every sin is avoidable and not inevitable, but pride makes us blind to maybe the early warning signs that are there. 1 Corinthians 10:12 says, Let the one who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. One of the things we can do to kill pride in our lives and cultivate humility is just own our sinfulness. Like Paul. We look at Paul and say, what an incredible saint. What an incredible man who was used by God time and time again. Most of what we pull doctrinally from the scriptures comes from his own writing. And what did he say of himself? I'm the chief of sinners. I'm number one on the list. Paul had a clear understanding of his frailty his failure, his sin nature that was at work in him. If you don't believe that, read Romans chapter 7 where he wrestles and comes to grips with his own sin nature. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, 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 I don't want to do, I do. What's wrong with me is his conclusion. 
We have to come to that understanding. Confession is key here. And I'm, I'm not just suggesting confession to God. That's absolutely appropriate. But we need to begin and grow in confessing our sins to others as well. And asking them for their help and their eyes as we try to grow in this life together. So we have to apply the doctrine of sin to our own life. Number four, we'll go quicker from here. Study um, and practice the spiritual disciplines in your life. What are the two main ones? We talk about them all the time. Getting in God's word and prayer. Those are the two key power sources. God's word is powerful. God speaks and what happens? Things come into existence. And prayer is what engages in us the spirit that applies the truth that we've been reading and studying and considering and helps us to grow and actually begin to cultivate love and joy and peace and patience and, as we're talking about today, humility. We need those spiritual disciplines. And here's, here's one of the very simple ways. It's not just that we need to understand the attributes of God. We need the Spirit's help to apply. It's just the act of performing the spiritual discipline that says every day to God, I need you. When you open up your Bible, what are you saying to God? I need you. I need to hear from you. When you're praying, you're saying, I need you to do something in my life. The simple act of the spiritual discipline is an act of humility. It's a statement that you're making. And that's where I said earlier, my failure so often is that I'll just dive in. I've got a, a, a spiritual project I need to do. I've got to prepare for some sort of meeting. I've got to prepare a sermon. And I'm the kind of guy that I just say, let's get to work. This is going to be fun. This is going to be exciting. And realize maybe after the fact, but I never really prayed. What's driving me in that moment? Pride. It's my own thinking that I can do this. I can handle this. I am blinded. I am completely incapable. I need him to work. I'm so thankful, just for a side note, that God is gracious and he will work through prideful people like me. He'll still use his word to accomplish things in people's life, even if I, in my arrogance, tried to do it on my own. Oh, I'm thankful for that. When we skip the spiritual disciplines, we're saying by our actions, if not by our lips, we're, we're what we say, you know, formally, we would not say it, but functionally we're saying, I don't need you, God. I don't need your help today. I don't need your word today. I don't need your power today. I've got this. That's pride. Put it to death by opening up the word, by praying. Number five, invite and pursue correction into your life. This kind of goes back to the doctrine of sin. Part of applying the doctrine of sin and having a clear understanding is we need to invite and pursue correction. We need other people watching us. This is the beauty of the church. This is what the church is supposed to be. You're supposed to be watching for me. I'm supposed to be watching for you. 
I mentioned that uh, much of this material, these particular headline points are from C.J. Mahaney's book, and I've shared his particular story from his book multiple times where he was in a bagel shop. And he was there, and he was eating a bagel, and, and he was kind of moving about and doing different things. And uh, he got a glance of himself in the reflection of the window or something, and he realized there's this huge glob of cream cheese stuck to the side of his face. With this beard right now, I get that. My kids are always like, Dad, you got like cheese hanging off your face, and there's all sorts of food. Uh, and the point is this. We don't see those things, but other people do. And I need other people to point out those things in my life. It's a blessing, as we talked about even last week, the loyal friend who will smite us, who will punch us, those faithful wounds that they will offer in order to help us grow. We need to invite other people to speak into our lives. Richard Baxter, Puritan, writes this, Pride is a deep-rooted and self-preserving sin. Understand that. It's a self-preserving sin. It's out to protect itself. And therefore, it's harder to be killed and rooted up than any other sin. It hinders the discovery of itself. It will not allow the sinner to see his pride when he's reproved. Neither will it allow him to confess it if he sees it nor to loathe himself and forsake it. Even when he recognizes all the evidences of pride in others, he will not see it in himself. If you would go about to cure him of this or any other fault, you will feel that you're handling a wasp or a snake. Yet when he is spitting the venom of pride against the reprover, he does not perceive that he is proud. This venom is part of the nature, therefore is not felt as harmful or poisonous. God help us to be people who are humble, who are willing to hear a brother, sister in Christ, a husband, wife, a spouse, a friend come into our lives and say, I think there's a problem here. I think there's an area where Pride is blinding you. You're not being as gentle as you should be. Your faithfulness is beginning to slip. God help us to be that humble person. There are many warnings in the book of Proverbs about the stiff-necked, the proud of heart. And I can assure you that none of those Proverbs end well for the one who pushes back against the reproof of a brother or sister in Christ. As a matter of fact, in just a few weeks, we're going to be dealing with that as we move into Galatians chapter 6. Once we move through the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 6 begins with how we are to help others who are overtaken by sin. How we're to be that person that steps into somebody else's life. How we're to bear burdens for others. And I am excited to get uh, to those particular texts to come back to this topic. Number six, these last ones are pretty simple. You need to use unflattering illustrations of yourself. Learn to do that. Learn to, uh, and I'll just throw in the last one here, learn to laugh at yourself. 
If you find yourself a person that you cannot express your failures, even your mistakes, if you can't look around and say, you know what I did? I am such a dummy. I fell on my driveway. If you can't express to other people those unflattering things about your life, then there's a pride problem. We're, we are failures and losers at every turn. <laughs> and we have to learn to embrace that. We have to learn to, at some point, be able to laugh about those things. I'm not talking about laughing about our sin, but laughing about our, our mistakes and failures that are not sinful. We have to be able to share that with other people. And the last one that I would put in there, number seven, is this, recognize your relative unimportance and prepare to be replaced. None of us are indispensable. You know, we often put in the hearts of our kids, you know, aim for the stars. You can do whatever you want to do, be whatever you want to be. But the truth is, that's not the reality for most of us. We're going to live a relatively normal life, have a family. Uh, we're going to have a relatively normal job. We're going to work our days. We're going to get sick. We're going to get better. We're going to have car accidents. We're going to move through life at a relatively normal pace. There's nothing new under the sun. That's the way that it's been with consistency since creation. And that's okay. It's okay because we do need to recognize that we're not the end all. I'm not the Joseph with the coat of many colors that is going to change the world. God can replace me just like that. Charles de Gaulle says it best when he says that, that graveyards are filled with indispensable men. They're gone. And Ecclesiastes reminds us that they're very quickly forgotten. There's a lot of people that by their generation were well-known people, but we don't know them. And we have to keep that in perspective. That doesn't mean, I don't mean to say that to depress you or to crush your dreams in life, but I mean it to say to go back to what we talked about last week. It's not about plaques. It's not about accolades. It's not about how much real estate you have, how much money you can acquire. What does it come down to? When you see Jesus face to face, what is he going to say? The aim is, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. The goal is faithfulness. Wherever he has you, whatever he has you doing, that is how greatness is known. And where does faithfulness come from? Humility. True greatness is found in humility. Recognizing who we are in position with the God who created us, with the Savior who died for us, with the Spirit who longs to work powerfully through us. 
by producing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Let's kill pride. Let's cultivate humility. Would you bow with me for a moment? I want to give you an opportunity maybe to confess. Maybe that's what needs to happen right now. Pride has been running rampant in your life. Maybe it's a prayer asking for the Spirit's assistance to see blind spots. You know something's not quite right, but you can't put your finger on it. Pray that God would help you to see where pride is controlling and blinding you. It's preserving itself in your life. Pray for humility. Father, you are good, good, good. You are patient to put up with us. Daily, I lift myself up. I exalt myself against you. I push my will through instead of being submissive and trusting to yours. And in patience and great forbearance and long-suffering, God, you continue to show mercy and grace. Thank you. Thank you for modeling in all of my failures what I'm supposed to be, how I'm supposed to treat others. And I pray that not just during this time, but as we move through this week, that that pride will be being killed all week long in our lives. And that humility will continue to be cultivated. Help us to put to action the things that we've talked about today, to not just move beyond them, but to really begin to think through these things. Consider your attributes. Consider our sin. We pray, we confess, we invite other people in. God, help us in this particular endeavor because this is what it's about. This is where it begins for us. And so I just pray that you would show us this week where we need to grow. And Father, we, we pray, Lord, for those who cannot be here today, we pray for the same for our congregation. We are so thankful for your spirit, for the work that you do. Thankful that we could gather together today and we could have this time. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.